I'm ready, man. I'm ready to rip into this. I'm ready to fucking go. Well, we're already started, so you might as well get going. I'm so pissed. People, I'm so pissed because of YouTube. I was just having a very dramatic and tension-filled morning as I was trying to navigate my way through the tech world of YouTube. They've stripped us from our Google Hangout, so we will have to upgrade our tech. Forgiveness for no live this week, but next week it will be a lot better. We could have some very interesting developments. So today we're going to do it on the back end. We're going to do it recorded. And before we get into it, though, like I've, I have to go through some of the research. Like The research for this one God, this is this is very, very interesting, for specifically because I was looking into David Icke, who is someone who I consider... Of course you were. Of course you were looking into David Icke. <laughs> he's quite a good proponent of Gnosticism, you know? He's quite, a good, uh, he's quite a good modern version of how that line of thinking goes. And you know that he has that famous, famous notion where he says, uh, the queen is a reptile. Can you see that, James? I do. I do see that. So you know that idea where the queen, queen is a reptile? I was, I was wondering about that because this, this ties into a lot of what we'll be talking about later. But um, I kind of think he's wrong because I was doing a bit of research myself and I realized that like, you know, even though you might think they're all reptiles, when you actually crack into them, things are a lot different. Oh, here we go. Here we go. I'm enjoying this. I've not seen these slides either. This will be a nice surprise. Hit me. Hit me, bad boy. Well, what do, you, what do you think? What do you think about our kangaroo kings? What do you think about our kangaroo kings now? Well, this... well I'm, I'm a little surprised. Why wouldn't Queen Elizabeth and old Duke of Edinburgh also be kangaroos? Well, see, I only could reveal uh, Charles and uh, is it William the other? I actually don't know these two well. We've got Kate, uh, Charles. I don't know this dude. I know Elizabeth. I don't know this dude either. This is who's this? Uh, that is well, I can't tell because you've got a kangaroo face. <laughs> kangaroo. That is that is Prince Charles. Okay. <laughs> so who's this? That's Prince William. Uh, yes, that's Prince William. And then who's this? That is that is Kate Middleton, the lovely Kate Middleton, far no, better no. than Meghan Markle. Your man in the middle. Oh yeah, that's not Kate Middleton. That is uh, that's the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip. Uh, oh, he's the crazy dude. Yeah. I love him. I love him to death. He's uh, he's 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 racist and sexist and in terms of quips anyway he's great fun he told he told all the scottish he told a scottish driving instructor how the hell do you keep the natives sober enough so that they can actually drive which is <laughs> well um as, as i think the true conspiracy i think david is wrong i think the true conspiracy is of course the one that i understand and um to bounce further from this i discovered something quite interesting by the way the reason why we haven't seen these is because i hid them <laughs> since last time i was like james can't see these i was doing some more research into uh phallic power and uh very interesting ideas about um the relationship between swords and logos and phalluses and and uh and snakes and all that and i found this picture and i, I think i think this does a very accurate description of like just see and tell me what you think what do you, what do you think about james oh my lord is that a kangaroo <laughs> the massive slang of course it is why am i surprised at this point Yes, yes, yes. This is this is a stereotypical one. I want to know what the guy with the stick is doing though. Uh, yeah, is he is he cleaning it? Is is that is that actually like um? It's not a sword. Is it more like a brush? He's looks brushing like he's it tenderly. Hockey. Looks like he's playing hockey with it, you know. <laughs> so the, the the schlang is that long. He just stands over the top of the hockey field and he just bats bats the yeah. bell to and fro. Yeah, man. That's this is what you're dealing with, you know. You're dealing with kangaroos who have with wangs that are longer than their legs. Like, what do you make it? Ah, like surely you're a bit afraid at this point. 
Well, does that sort of like hide within him? Has he got no internal organs? They just get sucked up inside him. Could be in his pouch. Maybe that's what it is. Yeah, so he sort of tucks it up and then he flops it out. Yeah, because otherwise he'd have to wrap it around his leg. It's just too he long has to that, walk with it. He also has that tail and you never know what that tail might actually be, you know? That's, that's very true. It could be like the mouth from Alien where it just sort of extends out into the world. It's like yes. a big dick instead. Um, speaking of which, I found a picture of an Englishman. <laughs> actually i think i have seen these pictures I was looking through your slides and they look like they were embedded within the lecture as if this yeah, was going to be something you were going to riff on that's significant to carl jung <laughs> you'll see you'll see although speaking of finding an englishman i also find a, an, a like a, a true symbol of the fertile powerful energy of the irishman well that's the same thing just no, a bit no, more, no. Just a bit more flamboyant. Different. You've got one, and then you've got another, and then you've got another. You've got three, man. Yeah, That's... but one's literally going up his bottom. <laughs> it's going out his bottom, you it's going, It's going in his bottom. You're Look, man, you don't even have a brain. You can't understand this stuff. <laughs> this is how it works. Yeah, that other picture was the definition of dickhead, literally. <laughs> yes. Um, and then I don't believe I've anything left. I think that is the end of me. So, Jimmy Boyo, I think we've got to bounce into the Gnosticism, give the people what they want. I know they're here festering, desperate for some, some Gnosticism. So I think you should take it away and riff in for the start. How's that yes, sound? Absolutely. Let me try and get this nice yes. thing up. Well, people, we are... We obviously had our technical difficulties, so we're doing it this way. But Gnosticism is a fascinating worldview in its ability to conceptualize psychology and the tragedy of psychology and the psychological problems with the physical, the metaphysical problems with the world. We live in a very unbalanced world where we sort of see everything as rational and psychology is like woo and, and all that stuff. Whereas the Gnostics tried to cross. We've talked before about how Christianity is a little bit, in some extent, too spiritual or it causes that 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 tension between them and gnosticism is a very noble attempt to try unify them it's very interesting to see how it works so jimmy's going to take it away for you yes i am in uh, in one brief moment let's uh, uh sort that still sort of right there we out. go you can see the nice number one can't you yes yes because technology never likes to work all right yeah so we're going to talk about gnosticism today and gnosticism is something i really really enjoy because i was thinking to myself who the hell really were they because if you think about the beginnings of the catholic church you had jesus coming along doing his jesusy things and then you had his close followers so peter james the just and saint paul being the main ones and they would go off and they would create his church peter was the rock on which he built his church, supposedly anyway. And then you had the Gnostics running around with weird ideas that aren't in the canonical Gospels. They believed in all kinds of strange things, like the Demiurge and the immortal realm of Barbalo. And you can go and you can go and read these texts for yourself. One of my favourites is the Gospel of Judas, which is hilarious. It, it, it's, it's so different to the normal Gospels. It just strikes you as so powerful because... Let me move on to a nice picture for you. There we go. Um, there's... Uh... <laughs> Uh, in, in the Gospel of Judas, for example, Jesus, he comes in to see his 12 disciples hanging around and then he laughs at them because they're all fucking idiots. And he goes, you know nothing, nothing. You're all stupid, which is in stark contrast, of course, to what we normally understand as Jesus, who's a lovely dovey man. 
But um, so these Gnostics, they had weird radical beliefs about Jesus and they were around for about the first few centuries after Christ. And these include groups like the Nassines, the Perates and the Sethians. And the Catholic Church didn't like them very much. They basically, they either killed them all or burned all their books because they're like, you guys are full of absolute shit. So that wasn't <laughs> so good. So one of the strangest ideas which they have is this idea of the psychic God and the idea that you yourself can become Christ. So what Jung believed they were, essentially, was the very first psychologists, where they saw Jesus Christ not as somebody to put on a pedestal, but somebody to emulate so that you can become like him. And that becomes a very, very important part of the story going forward. So if you think about Gnosticism versus Christianity, you could either fall into the normal Catholic frame, which is that Catholicism or canonical Christianity is correct, and the Gnostics were mentally insane weirdos. But I think another way to conceptualize this is the Christians laid out the dream on which Western civilization was built, and the Gnostics themselves were the dream readers of that dream, which is why they came out with stranger ideas. So the Christians would read into the Jesus story, we'll say, literally, whereas the Gnostics would treat it like they were dreaming a dream, and they would pull out symbols, and they would stick them all together and see what the hell was going on. And we know that Jesus was speaking sort of like a dream. There's a quote from John 3.12, for example, where he says, If I have told you about earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? So he's suggesting that there are two ways to go about this. I can speak to you normally in this world, or I can speak to you in a heavenly, dreamlike manner. And that's very exciting, but it's something which is very foreign to us. So if you think about what dream reading is, it's examining symbols for their meaning to the psyche. So you can actually go ahead and use them. And it's very uh, similar to this idea we've spoken about before, which is the alchemical magnet, where they would dream up this idea of a magnet and then they would use that in reality to get as close to God as humanly possible. And something to premise before going forward and looking at what some of their dreams were like is Jung doesn't claim any metaphysics here. He's saying, I'm going to stick purely to the realm of psychology. I'm not claiming that the demiurge is real. Calm down. And in fact, what he says is, What he says is, this is a direct quote from Jung, is left for the Lord, as only he can will things into existence. So he's slamming down metaphysics while at the same time speaking a metaphysical language, because he's an absolute G. So there's this idea of the the old magnet in, in, in alchemy. And Gnosticism actually hit on the exact same magnet. So briefly to recap, what the alchemists were looking for was some attractive force which would deliver man to God. And we've spoken about what that might mean, which is a connection between the ego and the self in Jungian terms. That's the goal of individuation. Whereas the Gnostics had the same idea that there are multiple instances of a magnet attracting iron in Gnostic texts being the equivalent of something uh, of something of that nature. So uh, they what they did is they took the Christian dream and they did dream reading analysis to it and they extracted out a magnet like this man here. So they would spontaneously come across. He would see that there was a great amount of attraction to this magnet and he would walk towards it because I'm an absolute artiste. So I'm going to go over a few Gnostic dreams briefly um, to see what the hell was going on. And as we go along, they're going to become more and more developed as to what the hell this magnet might be. What is it in the Christian story that will allow you to get as close to God as possible or in a Jungian sense, become as complete as humanly possible? So the first one is by these group called the Nassines. And they had this idea, they were very focused on the four rivers of Eden, you can see there. So the Garden of Eden, if you can see my mouse, it's at the conjunction where all of these four rivers are. And then you have yeah. these, these, all these rivers coming out. They're all flowing eastwards. 
Um, it's at the very, very beginning of the book of Genesis. And it's one of those things where we're not sure why geographical information would be included in the texts, if it is indeed just a dream. But that is a that is a story for another day. So they... What, Sorry to- Sorry to interject, but is there is there like evidence for any things like that, or, or like are we? Whoop? All is these rivers exist, yes. And there, is there like you know ruins there of like you know giant no. giant people? No, no, there's there's no no evidence of giant people with massive skulls. No, 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 no. Sad, sadly not, sadly not. But well, what what they were doing these Nassim people is they took each of these four rivers and they gave each of them a sense. So one of them, so we'll say Karun here was sight. Tigris was sound. Uh, Wadi Baton, however the hell you meant to pronounce that, was smell. But the fourth one, the river Euphrates, which for some reason is the most famous of these four rivers, they equated that with the mouth. And they said that the mouth is the most special one because not only can you receive material nourishment, but you can also receive spiritual nourishment. So what you can see immediately is there was these three rivers here. And by putting on a fourth one, we've spoken about the importance of quaternity symbolism before, sticking on the fourth one made the whole thing complete and elevate it to a spiritual realm. So that's an interesting idea. They also uh-huh. believed that this itself was a representation of the human brain. They were proto-psychologists. It's not something like, I wouldn't have known that, for example. Like, this is the human brain, and it's all the four senses coming out from paradise, which is deep within you. Bashing on, on the old microphone there. So the river itself was known as something called Aqua Doctrinae, which essentially what that means is their doctrine was like a water. And we've spoken in in alchemy as well, for example, that as the water flowed, the water is where uh, the water is where those unconscious contents are held. It's where the beauty and the majesty and the things, the hidden knowledge that you want from life is, is held. And through understanding their particular doctrine, their gnosis, which is where the word Gnosticism comes from, then you could go on your own secret journey and get closer and closer to God itself so water in this particular instance was a magnet this is the first magnet we're coming across understanding the water properly leads you closer to god now the next one were these group of people called the parates or the parates and uh, they were interested in the idea of equating jesus christ as a serpent so john actually the old lad john from the new testament (laughs) he, he, he he equates jesus as being a snake he compares him to moses's snake staff for example and the gnostics loved this they loved this so in case no one gets the reference in the top corner that is snake from metal gear solid as christ so so christ is a snake i thought that would be very very jovial but there's no live chat so i can see people roaring with laughter in the crowd so a, a serpent for example is just like a fish so we've spoken about the fish symbolism before and a serpent comes out of the darkness and it frightens you it astonishes you and what this represents is the something within your unconscious which is so far away from you that it's like an animal component to you along that whole evolutionary time scheme time scale back to when we were animals it represents that suddenly something is jumping out of the unconscious at you and it startles you and it frightens you and in this particular instance it would be christ coming out of the unconscious because he suddenly appeared in space and in and, and in time and he and he startled people not everyone was the biggest fan of him but in this appearance as he's christ and he's not satan he redeems you so the second instance of a magnet which we can see is this idea of the sun 
meaning the the son of god as a snake and the the magnet component of this his appearance pulls forward unconscious contents with him so you've gone from water to now a snake which is an actual animate agent which decides when it's going to come and spring upon you we're getting a development in that magnetic process of getting closer to god and the last one is i love this picture by the way it's a beautiful picture but the last one were these characters called the Sethians, and they had the most developed one. In fact, they had an alchemical doctrine about 1,000 years before alchemy ever came about, which is an astounding phenomenon to consider. And their idea goes as such. So we originally had light, which hit the dark waters below, we'll say. So we had, we had water, dark water below, and a light came down and smacked into it. And this created a magic spark. And this spark is what created life. You know, in the beginning, God said, let there be light, and he created life, etc. The world was without form and void. So that's where life came from. And upon death, this spark disappears from the body. It becomes separated out into its different components. Because life itself is an anti-entropic phenomenon. It, it, mm -hmm. it exists when it shouldn't. There's a lot of things stuck into it, and it's fighting against the chaos of life in order to remain. But when you die, that becomes released, and everything goes off and gets separated again. Now, this separation, what the Gnostics believe, was aided by this character known as Mercurius, who we're going to talk a bit more about later. And his job, his, his job in the heavenly hierarchy was to put things into their proper place. So when Jordan Peterson, for example, says, sort yourself out, this is what he's talking about, is allow Mercurius to come from, so basically the messenger of the gods, to come from your unconscious, listen to it properly, and allow it to sort itself out and put things into their proper place. And what also helps with this is a sword so what the gnostics believed was when christ said i come not to bring peace but a sword hence the lovely high definition sword on your screens right now what that meant was he's not coming to fuck you up he's coming to use his sword to slice down the middle of things which should not exist in their current form and separate them into their proper parts. And the sword of Christ is known as the Logos. So in this mm -hmm. third and final instance, the magnet itself is the Logos, which puts things in their proper place. And that's a very cool idea because we can't use the idea of water, we'll say, necessarily. We have to go and use something else. So if we want to go and have a magnet to bring us closer to God, the best we've got so far is the idea of Logos. So I'd like to, I'd like to touch on that character of Mercurius or Hermes because they're basically the same guy. And he's, as you can see on your screen right now, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's, he's seen a young gentleman asleep and he's decided that he's going to come to sort out all of his dreams for him. And what, what Jung believed was this Greek god Hermes or his Roman equivalent Mercurius was he was the guy responsible for your dreams. He literally sat in your head, waited for you to go to sleep and then he'd fuck around with your head. And he actually would fuck around with your head as well, which is really fun. In a nice little footnote, he some, Jung sometimes writes really angry footnotes, which I find very amusing. Most, most, most jovial touch to my day and he basically says that young and uh, that freud was only dreaming about sex so much because hermes kept coming into his dreams and fucking with them because wow. he's a he's a trickster figure he gives you a challenge through which you interpret your dreams they're not simple because he's there giving you a challenge which is a cool idea but in the odyssey for example greek texts hermes was this guide of the souls and he, he was described as having a wand that dropped sleep on the eyes of the dead and woke up the sleepers so essentially he is the uh, the greek equivalent of the christian logos that idea of hermes evolved into the idea of christ if you want to have a reductionist purely psychological explanation 
So, and there's a weird idea as well. He was also picked up in Alchemy as being Mercurius. You can say Hermes and Mercurius are the same character. There's a weird experiment you can do, and no one really knows why it happens. If you take some Mercury, which is where Mercurius gets his name from, and you drop it into gold, for example, a mixture where there is gold in it, Mercury will attract the gold to it. What? Very strange. The name Mercurius came before we understood that property as well. Oh my god. So you can can say that Mercurius, in physical fallen form, will sort things into their proper place. He will pull out the gold or or, or the wheat from the chaff. So that's his job, is to sort things out properly. Very, very exciting idea. That's just one of those science conspiracy theories. You know all them scientists up there doing stuff? There, that's one of their like. That's crazy. That is absolutely crazy that they were that they were absolutely they were nailing all these properties onto this symbol, and then it comes to manifest as a physical. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. Yep, yep. that's why the alchemists were doing their thing because they were looking for the spiritual in the material, and yeah. they saw it in mercury. Mercury is a very very weird weird element. It's highly poisonous as well. Oh, yeah, highly poisonous. What they used to do in the old days, they, we don't do it anymore, we use something else. But thermometers used to have mercury in them, and then they'd put thermometers into people's mouths, and then they would break. They'd swallow the mercury and then die immediately, which is hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think um, I heard a story about someone who who uh, was dealing with mercury, and it got through. Their, they, they put on the wrong set of gloves one day, and so they got like this super high dose of mercury by accident because it got through the gloves and absorbed in their skin. But it was a delayed onset. So it like it started to collect in their brain over the course of like a year, and so they gradually just went more and more insane. They had no idea what was happening to them. It's crazy yeah. stuff. Yeah, mercury poisoning is real bad. So so an overload of mercury stops things going into their rightful place. I don't know. I just find it a strange idea. Hermes is one of those gods where he shouldn't really be a god. He he's, he's kind of a trickster god, but is also the most important god. He's one who used to guide your soul down into the underworld so that you could go properly. So. Psycho- yeah, keep going, my man. Keep going. Yeah. So, so what, what what do these ideas of the magnets mean? So you can see on the screen right now, if you're not familiar with the with the Christian corpus, you have Jonathan the Baptist there, or John the Baptist, and Jesus. He's in the water, and he's like, John, the actual fuck are you doing? Stop baptizing me with water. My method of baptism is even better. There is there is an idea in Christianity. It's the very very beginning of the Gospel of Mark, the beginning of the New Testament. And it begins with a prophecy from Isaiah, which is saying, there will come a man crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. And so the idea is that there was a character called John the Baptist who was hanging around, literally eating wild locusts in the fucking woods, because that's what he used to do. And he would baptize people in the Jordan River with the uh, presumption that Christ would come immediately after him. So he was preparing people for Christ to come, but Christ's method of baptism, his initiation into a spiritual life, would be far, far, far superior. So what we learn from the Gnostic dreams is there are multiple different types of magnet that can attract gods to man and that put things in their proper place in your head. And these are represented by symbols. So we have the water, for example, and then we have the snake, for example. And their occurrence in the in the psyche of mankind is incredibly old, very, very, very deep phenomenon. And what Jung suggests is that if we hadn't evolved those particular symbols, if our minds weren't already primed by them, then when Christ was to come on planet Earth and go, boys, I'm the Messiah, everything's grand, then that wouldn't have mattered to us because we wouldn't be ready for him. They were the, like the John the Baptist in the 
Christian story. They were priming us. They were preparing ye the way for the Lord. But then the real magnet can come down. And the magnet in this particular case is Logos. So again, with John the Baptist, he was using water, just as we were saying earlier, as that magnet to draw you to God. And then sword, sword, his name's not sword. Then Jesus came and used his sword or the Holy Spirit. They're the same thing. It's all metaphorical language for Jesus's toolkit to do a far, far better job. So this is oh, a disgusting God, picture. Yeah. I'm really sorry for, have, for have, have, having made this. But if you, we got to consider as well, of course, when I say dream, the Gnostic dream, I literally mean dream and I don't know about you if you're a young guy perhaps your dreams aren't always exactly PG-13 like they are sometimes they can get a little bit dodgy so a lot of the Gnostic dreams were considered incredibly heretical by the Catholic Church because yes. they were sexual in nature and that's very very naughty but of course the Catholics didn't realize or they forgot or they were too ignorant whatever you want they forgot that it was actually a dream so here's a very nice family friendly story this makes a good bedtime story as well. So one day Jesus was going up a mountain, as he often did, swiggity swooting around. And then uh, he decided one day to give birth to Mary from his side. I don't know why and I don't know how, but Mary just flopped out of his side. And then he looked down at Mary and she looked up at him and he decided to fuck the living shit out of her. Oh my God, man. <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? Are you... <laughs> Then, 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 while he was fucking the shit out of her, she she fell on the floor, looked back at him, and she looked really shocked. She was like, "Wait, what the fuck is going on? What what is happening?" So, in in a true boyo fashion, Jesus turned down, looked at her, and went, "Oh, ye of little faith." And that's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's how this other story ends. That is the best one-liner I've ever heard. Oh, you little faith. And then what the hell does that mean? It doesn't make any sense from a real standpoint. And the Gnostics didn't think this was an actual historical event. And like they got a vision where suddenly, <laughs> oh, that, we got it right there, lads. They decided to fuck the shit out of Mary. That that didn't work. What what this is what this highlights primarily is the dreamlike function of what they were doing, clearly. But it also highlights something else which is deep, deep, deep within our psyche. So believe it or not, that's actually a creation of the world myth, a cosmogonic myth. And I mention this book all the time, The Origins and History of Consciousness. Please read it. It is a beautiful, beautiful book. And so what what Jesus is doing by birthing Mary from his side, he's repeating what Adam was doing when he gave birth to Eve from his rib. And they were the very first two human beings. And in the creation of Mary, what happened was one entity became two. So when you differentiate your object from your subject, suddenly consciousness can become possible. So that act itself was an actual creation of consciousness. And believe it or not, the fucking the shit out of her part goes back to this particular symbol. And this is the Ouroboros symbol. So this is actually the deepest symbol that exists in the human mind. And it represents in in the phylogenetic tree of human evolution. um, This is the stage where the ego first began to leave the unconsciousness. So our most recent mythological stage was Paradise Lost, where the ego fell from the self, just like Satan fell from God. But the earliest was when we first began to move away from the self. And this is this Ouroboros character. It's a symbol which is spontaneously drawn in childhood all the time and I remember that when I was a kid I used to draw this constantly and I could always wow. be really angry with myself because I could never do it right because my, my drawing is terrible like I'm very I forget which 
side of the brain is academics, but I'm like 99% that way and not the other way. But I remember drawing these constantly all the time because as our human evolution took place, our consciousness began to develop and that's mimicked as you develop as a human being. So the first stage you would go through is the Ouroboros stage, which is this. And the last stage you would go through is as an adult would be your ego falling from yourself, which only took place, I don't know, 2000 years ago, 500 years ago, whenever it was. So this particular snake, he's complete. He's absolute and utter completeness. He's the character which says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end in, in, in the book of Revelation. He gives birth to himself. He weds himself. He is everything. This is God, if you want to represent him. He, is, he has no opposites whatsoever. He is absolute perfection. He's beautiful. So uh, what happens when you turn that magnet on? It's a, it's a sounds like really nice theory, but what happens when you do it and you get closer and closer to the Lord Jesus Christ, our, our, our true saviour on, on this old planet? Well, the idea that of God isn't something which people just spontaneously made up. It's a word, at least, which describes an experience which alters your consciousness. And we cannot see, we cannot see him through science, but we can experience him. And if you follow the magnet, which is Logos, one of the magnets anyway, then you can encounter him. God himself is that Ouroboros character right there. He is perfection and he has no opposites. So therefore, when you encounter him, he removes your opposites. And what that means is you currently have many conflicts in your life, one thing against another. What should I do? Maybe it's in your conscious life, maybe your unconscious life. But an encounter with God removes those opposites from you which is why people who encounter god people who are very religious are peaceful people when you encounter the self you are a relaxed person you feel the ultimate truth there are no conflicts in, in your life initially what this does is it causes an immense amount of disorientation uh, which is what the alchemists called chaos alchemical chaos in fact um, goethe himself actually described satan as the strange son of chaos there's that strange dynamic where you cannot comprehend what happens when you go and you reach the self itself so once you encounter him you become fucked up for a while essentially and then you start having encounters of quaternity symbols and one of them my favorite one is this fourth man in the fire story in the book of daniel also a great johnny cash song you have the three men shadrach meshach and abednego in the fire and they were able to withstand the fiery furnace which they were thrown into for being heretics by the fourth man who was like the son of god coming in and saving them so the fourth man's appearance was like this quaternity symbol their encounter with god made a quaternity symbol is what that means and the last little little tiny spiel i've got going on here this has gone on for, for a little while is how you can become jesus christ because that's something <laughs> i think which we all want to do at least just for a party trick that'd be very nice so of course this following this magnet we'll just call it logos for now will lead you further and further down the path of becoming christ and getting closer to god this is individuation union individuation process now jesus christ himself began in history as a man and what the Catholics did, and in many ways the Orthodox did, lots of us like to do, is we like to relate to a man, a whole personality, that he is there in the clouds and we can pray to him and he is, and he's wonderful. The Gnostics weren't doing the same thing. As they were dream reading Jesus as a man, they began to take his personality apart. And that's when you started getting weird symbols like him fucking his own mother on top of a mountain. And that was somehow the creation of consciousness. So the Catholics didn't like that particular worldview. They wanted Jesus to remain as his own man, distinct and separate from us. So they started killing the Gnostics or burning all of their books. But by the Gnostics dissolving his personality down into dreams, in doing so, that energy was able to go inside their own psyche and they would assimilate the Christ figure themselves. 
So by taking Christ apart, you become more like Christ. And that was their idea of gnosis. By truly understanding what it meant, in other words, dream reading it in an abstract way, then you would become like Christ. And if we don't do the same, in other words, if we do not have a symbolic worldview, then Jung has a very serious warning for us. We need to read the dreams of Western civilization to see what they mean and what we need to do, or we will not become like Christ. The opposite will take place. Christ will remain but another man, and we will not assimilate him properly. Instead, by default, we will begin to assimilate the Antichrist, because we have to do what is the opposite. And as we assimilate the Antichrist more and more and more and more and more, like they did, for example, in Soviet Russia, and like we're currently doing now on a mass materialistic political delusional scale, Jung's warning is uh, it's not going to be a very good prognosis. <gasps> James. James. Um, that's actually a brilliant springboard with which I can launch into my discussion of what I discovered in this chapter. So please excuse me as I tear into it because James is setting up a very a very, very important premise. And the idea is that the Gnostics were essentially dream reading the world, trying to figure out well, like where, where are they? What's going on? So we have this problem where we're, our conception of the world is very singular. We think there's this material world and we think all of our, all of our psychological nonsense and all of our dreams and all of our thoughts and all of our emotions are utter bullshit and they're not really real. They're sort of these epiphenomenon almost like this smoke that is coming off the actual fire which is life and that, that life is the material world of rationality and reason is the correct way to deal with that the problem is is that what that the way you operate in a world like this is that you have to pretend all of this stuff that you fundamentally experience in your life such as your emotions such as your dreams such as your like your your visualizations of how the world works and all that you have to pretend they're not real and that causes a huge amount of conflict because then you get this sort of division where all of that stuff doesn't matter. And if all of that stuff doesn't matter and it's not real, you have to live in this fallen world. And that's a very antichrist way of looking at things. Um, the Gnostics were trying to solve this problem. The, the problem is we need to unify these somehow because they're very hard to unify. How do you unify the outside objective world with the inner confusing world? How do you unify the... How do you do justice to what Dawkins would see as the cold mechanical universe where reason reigns, but also do justice to the emotional universe that is inside your own very soul. How do you figure that out? What do you do about that? And so the Gnostics would have thought to themselves, okay, we need to combine it all together. This is, this is the energy that would have been going into their notion of the dream reading. They would have taken all these symbols of Christ. They would have taken all these symbols of uh, whatever's going on around them and all these ancient symbols, and they, they mashed it all together to form a perspective. And that perspective eventually turned out this really, really profound idea, like one of the most profound ideas I think humans can ever really think about, and that is the idea that we live in a simulation that when you merge all of your psychology with the reality that you live in, the only conclusion you can come to is that the reality you live in is fake, that the reality you live in is not real. There's something wrong with it. There's something, there's something inherently delusional about it. And of course, you've heard about the demiurge, but, but um, that, that is the, the, the end result that they got to, that there's something wrong about it. So that the world that, Dawkins wants to combat, compete with the world of the material 
he believes the, the Gnostics would have believed is essentially a false world, an upside down world, a trick, a, a wool that was pulled over your mind in order to keep you trapped. And this, um, this echoes painfully in all of our souls as we try to figure out what if the world we live in is not the real world? What if we live in an imaginary fake world? Who knows? And so um, the, the way this manifests is their belief in how do I escape from it? How do I get out of this world? So they, they believe that, first of all, they read all these dreams that are going on and then they conclude from reading them that we in fact live in the ultimate dream. And this, this pain that we experience of being stuck and stressed all the time is, is, a, is not correct. There's something wrong about it. And so they want to escape it. They want to get out of it somehow. And of course, this idea manifests in um, the best one you can see it is in the Matrix. I'm sure you've seen the Matrix before. But that is the fundamental distilling of that idea that echoes in our souls. It's like, what? There's something wrong about this world. There's something not quite right. And you know, you know it in yourself. It's like, this can't be the truth. This can't be reality. Like I'm burdened with pain. I have, if I focus on the material world, I have no connection to anything important. And you see what happens when fundamentally we, we take the opposite view and say, this is the only world. You see just widespread nihilism just take over completely. And it's almost as if we do what Nietzsche said, where he said we, we, we throw off the overworld. And we focus on this world. And what happens then is that the, the demiurge, the owner of this world, becomes the god. And then what we end up doing is worshipping the world he has created. But the world he has created is nihilistic, cold, empty, pointless, fundamentally a prison, a trap. And so we want to escape that. And we, we are trapped in this prison through very, very often our emotions themselves, our desires, as they would classically have said, Satan's ability to pull us around and keep us entrapped in this thing is, is to do with his ability to make us fear death, to make us fear um, losing status, to make us fear losing food. And so these desires keep us anchored to this reality of the matrix where it is regulated in some sense by, by evil beings that are keeping us in here for some reason. And um, the, to wake up from that is the big question. And the Gnostics dream read and said, oh, fuck, all these dreams that we're getting, all these, all these visions that we're getting from the other side and all these people like Jesus who came down and gave us information are actually trying to swoop into the Demiurge's world and say, do you realize that this is not the truth, that you are actually asleep and I want you to wake up? And there's a way out of this. It's like Morpheus coming to Neo. He's coming to Neo and saying, there's a way out of this you're trapped and you have to follow if you want to escape and what's interesting like from reading the ion chapter you get a lot of uh you see a lot of very interesting beliefs and myths that young picked up on and one of them was that uh the demir created us and we were worms he created so like the demir flew down he fell out of heaven and he created he wanted to create something like heaven so he created adam but adam was essentially just this useless worm and that's sort of you know it's it's an undignified way of looking at humanity, but it is sort of what we are if you think about us in a purely rational sense. And this is, this is what's interesting. If you have a rational perspective on the world, like a, a, a materialistic rational perspective of the world, you don't see humans as anything divine or special. There's nothing about them that's special. Their consciousness is just an epiphenomenon. They're advanced animals, nothing more. And you sort of do see them as worms. Like they are quite easy to manipulate. If you get enough money and a high enough position 
and um, enough control, you can just use advertising to keep people addicted to like any, you can get people buying anything nearly, absolutely anything. If you can, you can just figure out their psycho- psychology, hit their pain points, hit their, hit their desire for sex, give it to a good looking person, stick it up in an advertisement, you can control them in some sense. And so are they more than worms? Are they more than these single digit creatures that just crawl around, consume don't do anything, don't achieve anything. And even everything they achieve has no meaning in the end because we live in a materialistic universe that's going to crash. You keep them stuck in that and and then they die and then it's all over. And you can just manipulate them in the meantime to make you happy and you have more worms to eat yourself. And so God looked down on what this demiurge had created and, and was disgusted. He was like, it's almost as if God's son was the demiurge and the demiurge broke away and said, I'm going to start my own fucking kingdom of heaven, you prick. And uh, he goes and he makes these these humans. And then God looks down and is like, you did such a shit job, man. Like, look at these poor fucks. Like, they're, they're useless. And it's, we, we have God's scorn. It's the God isn't dead. He just doesn't, he doesn't respect us. He doesn't see our dignity. And we're like, please save us, God. But why would he save us unless we beg him for it? We are the sons of something monstrous. And he's like, look at them, Jörg. I will fix them i will fix your your sons i will fix your creations if they ask for it and this is this idea of people like christ as like admins in the matrix coming down and saying i will show you how to get repentance from god and this actually relates into the idea of unconsciousness because the fundamental sin that god hated in us was our lack of consciousness because we were of this we were of the seed of this demiurge in some sense and his fundamental sin was actually a sort of unconsciousness and unawareness. And then um, that was his hate. And so we have that strange problem where Gnosticism are, are trying to unify all that. And as James was talking about, you have that Ouroboros, which is uh, at the very core. But this brings us into the idea of the snake. Because this is a, a very core, empty, sorry, very core symbol to the human psyche, as James was saying. Um, you you've heard jordan peterson say that they, they've noticed it's it's almost it's very like one of the fastest symbols that that children get afraid of is snakes that were coded for fear of snakes there's something very important and that's obviously from back in the jungle when we would have been up in the trees and everything would have been going wrong and we like you know a snake would eat us and we're like oh god watch for them snakes so they would have represented to us something very very primal and dark and they also have that they have like no higher consciousness. They have no, they have no, um, they crawl on their bellies and they are, but they also shed their skin and rejuvenate. So they're, they're sort of like a pure life force. And this is the way it's represented in our mind. We see the snake as this, this perfect representation of primal energy, the cosmic worm, if you will. It's just this pure, pure beast, you know, pure instinct. It's even your spine looks like a snake, you know, it's pure instinct. And so it's the, 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 the lowest form of us, but it's also the highest form of us. It's this purely abstract reptilian energy that does not feel anything, that does not love you, that does not, none of that stuff. It's almost like robotic in the way it operates. It's, um, you can think of, of this as uh, the, the way a psychopath works. You know, their, their pure instinct combined with pure intellect, pure inhuman intellect, almost godlike in their, their ability to outthink people but they have no heart in the middle of it. And so the snake represents everything that is not human, inhuman. 
he represents the you know the bottom chakra the the phallus as we were talking about earlier but he also represents the 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 higher prefrontal cortex that might even struggle to love a bit and it, it makes it misses that human part in the middle and what's interesting is that when we look at the top of our societies we begin to see snakes like if you even think if you think about um if you think about the way people describe people who betray them they'll call them snakes if you think about the way people describe uh yeah like uh, traitors dishonest people and people you can't trust they'd be like it's some snaky about them don't like that snake and then um, ike david ike is quite famous for introducing that meme that the the ruling class are in fact reptiles which is a brilliant idea because he's suggesting that the people on top are reptiles cold-blooded robots and they don't they don't see us as one of them they see us as something else and and that is him projecting like or possibly maybe it's fucking true who knows but if we were to look at this psychologically it's it's like he is projecting on the world his notion of the people at the top represent something that is unhuman and it's the higher human thing uh, the fundamental idea of the the reptiles controlling the world is that they don't have empathy whereas we expect everybody to have this sort of humanness to them but of course when you go to the top of the world you, you stop seeing individuals you start seeing digits and it's actually quite necessary because it's hard to run a society if you don't you know, if you treat everybody as like, if you, if you have too much feels when you're running a society, you're not going to make clean decisions. You're not going to make the, the rational decisions to, to organize the world. And so in some sense, when you're at the top of society, you have to act a bit snake-like. You have to act a bit reptile-like. It is just a consequence of the world. And it's as Jesus articulates it the best when he says, the prince of this world, the God of this world is evil. He is the evil God. Like the God, the world we live in is ruled by <clears throat> tyrannical forces. There is no way around it. It's very hard to have a good king. It's not impossible, but in some sense, if you want to master the material world, you're going to have to do, you're going to have to have something hollow, something cold-blooded about you. And you even know that yourself. Like we as humans are attracted to leaders who are ruthless but get the job done. We would trade empathy for a monster who was on our side, that type of thing. And then, um, so someone like Ike is, is doing some very interesting work and I'm going to get into him a lot because he is the best representative of someone who thinks like a Gnostic nowadays. Um, maybe he, 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 he believes the worldview. Maybe he doesn't actually get the, the psychological angle of it, which is interesting, but he actually believes physically what is going on is that at the top of the world, there is a pantheon of snake people and what they have done is they, they, they are masters of the material world. And they are actually in league with the Demiurge in an attempt to keep us all trapped so they can feed off us because we are like food to them. And um, he calls these the archons. It's, it's super interesting. So as you can see, that, that Gnostic ideal is starting to filter into this. It's like, all right, this world isn't correct, but it's held together by forces. Like you could say the laws of physics or th there are laws to this world where you know, um, empathy doesn't work long-term eventually. Well, okay, empathy does work, but empathy doesn't necessarily work in, maybe compassion 
has has a vulnerability, you know, like someone like Christ comes down who is perfect in his compassion and he gets destroyed straight away. That makes you suspicious. It's like, wait a second, this world isn't does not belong to the good per se, because the good can't even survive in this world. And it's almost like the ruling powers of this world are are somewhat evil. And uh, Ike describes that as the archons. He says that, okay, these these people came in during the hack. This is like the Matrix idea. It's where he's setting up this myth. They they came from another planet and they hacked into into the earth. And then they stay went around, they started manipulating us. And they manipulated us with um all these ideas to set up a matrix. So they're using like religions and all that shit to create these mind control fields and keep us stuck in the matrix where they can keep us focused and doing what essentially a farm, you know, and the, the fences are our belief systems. And um, that's, that's, that's what he sees going on. He sees these people flowing down, these, these evil forces, keeping us trapped and keeping us away from the truth. Um, yes, the, here, here's a quote from him. The existence of a force manipulating and directing human society is an immensely common theme across religions and cultures the world over. There are many different names. Um, just a few of them include the Archons from the Gnostics, the Jinn from Islam, Demons, Christianity, Flyers, Central America, Serpent Gods, the Far East, Central America, and elsewhere, the Anunnaki, who were also reptiles from Sumeria, um, Chitui, Zulu, Snake Brothers, Hopi, and Star People. So you can see the, this idea of ruling pantheons and this notion of even the reptile thing being mixed up with them. And they all serve this demiurge. Ike was saying that he lives on Saturn, but the Gnostics would say he is the god of this world. He is the, 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 the material ruler, if you will. And um, their, their belief system, the Gnostic belief system, then gets a slightly, more, slightly different because they set up this frame that there was God in heaven, and then they had God's son, who was this admin that we experienced as Jesus Christ. And then um, they had Sophia, and Sophia was the, the wisdom goddess, but Sophia fell away and she gave birth to the demigod. And what we experience as time is actually Sophia going through her moods as she's trying to come to terms with what has happened to her. So she's, she, this is Sophia, this is our sort of our mother, the fertile ground. And the demiurge is the, the beast that came out of her in some sense after the fall. And so we are living in the... the, the um, the, the, like time and the seasons and all that stuff. We are trapped in her dream in some sense. And so this is where you start getting into a very interesting theme about Gnostics and about this stuff in general, that the idea is that we are trapped in this world because we are doing something wrong, because the God we are seeking is asleep, who in some sense is us, and our original sin is that we are unconscious. And so all of this is a dream inside the head of a God, which we are, but we're unaware that we're that God because we're trapped by the Demiurgs and the Archons. Now, I, I, can you see the sort of vision, the idea that's starting to get built up here, the prison that we're in? Plato also had this very famous, the theory um, of the Plato's theory of the cave, allegory of the cave. The movie, The Matrix, I think was based off this. Although they, they were obviously researching all this stuff when they made that film. But, but the allegory of the cave is that there's a load of people trapped in this cave. And behind them, they're looking at a wall. And behind them, there is a, there is a set of people who are holding up these, these symbols on sticks. And there's a fire. 
and the shadows coming off those symbols are reflecting on the wall. And then behind that fire on the, the far end of the cave, there is an escape route up into the truth, the, into actual reality. And so um, these people are looking at the wall, seeing all these shadows, seeing all these forms, believing that they're seeing the truth. When in fact, this truth is getting put up over their eyes by these strange, strange deceivers of sorts. There's a set of people get, keeping them imprisoned in some sense. And they can't wake up from it. They, they are trapped in it because they, what they believe they are seeing is the truth. But they can't, they can't wake up by saying, what if what I'm seeing is not the truth and there is something else to it? What if I'm in a simulation? What if I'm in a fake world, as the Gnostics thought? Or as David Icke is saying, what if with the world we live in now is just this control tool of the archons? What if, um, and this, this, like, you know, you can think of it in a complex way, but you could even keep it quite simple. Like the society you grow up, up in has a set of forms and you get taught what those forms mean, which is almost like the shadows of them. And you were told to obey those. You're, and then if you turn around and actually question the forms and maybe even climb up and see things from your own perspective, you'll be breaking away from society and society wants you imprisoned in that thing in some sense. And the Gnostics just took that a level further and said, what if the entire world is like that? What if it's more than just your society that's, you know, keeping you in, in, enslaved because they're evil? What if there's actually people who own the reality you live in that are doing that very, very thing? And um, this idea of purifying forms is what evolved eventually into alchemy. As James is talking about, you had Mercurius, you had these... You had these powers that would swoop down, such as Christ. So yeah, by the way, so yeah, Christ would swoop down, uh, or, or Hermes, or whoever the fuck you wanted it to be. They would swoop down, and they would explain to people, here, come, I'll show you what's real. I'll show you what to look. I, I will attract you. So they, they, it's almost like Christ would be, would be here, and the people who were righteous, who wanted to escape, would wake up, would snap out of it, and then climb over and go, sit and go meet him. And he would bring them, and he would show them. And so the, the alchemists started to get this idea that the, the, this, the way that they would do that is that they, they were following that instinct, that there was, okay, there's something that I need to know. I need to figure out about this. There's something I need to purify out of this. There's something wrong with this world that's dirty, and I need to, I need to purify myself out of this. I need to lift myself up to something higher to bring myself closer to God. It's that idea of bringing yourself out of unconsciousness into consciousness. Jung would say this whole endeavor was premised off this... Um, unconsciousness this unconscious state with the in the alchemists would work to try to develop consciousness individuate themselves to the point where they would wake up and escape from the reality they would find the philosopher's stone they would meet god and get eternal life they would um shall we say discover what is out there and, and escape from this problem and this also relates to this idea of them trying to distill out pure purity out of out of the elements and whatnot they had that um, table of elements, you know, they, as James was saying, they'd try to pull out gold and whatnot. They'd figure strange stuff out where if you dropped mercury into gold, it would attract it towards it, like amazing stuff like that. So this is, this is their whole endeavor about distilling reality because reality is this entropic piece of chaos. You know, everything is put into whatever shape it's in, but you can actually take all that stuff and distill it down into its pure set of elements. You can take, you know, the walls around you and distill them into carbon and um, various minerals that make them up. And they'd start to figure that out, that there's actually these root forms of everything that they can turn things into. And so what, what is that? Is that, is that the, 
what is that stuff? Is that the fundamental forms of reality? What's going on there? And this is where this has led them to the, this actually led them to the endeavor of science where they, they were like, all right, what's the purest way we can look at reality? And they eventually get down to the idea of uh, scientific laws or principles. So this, this all wraps around this idea of pulling yourself out of this matrix, waking up, escaping this bullshit, realizing there's something not right and snapping out of it. And um, that is about facing the snake, if you will. And um, the way they suggest to doing this, as James articulated very well, is by becoming a creature of by finding the attractor, like by finding the magnet, they had, look, they had millions of metaphors for this. They just kept on using consistent new metaphors for this and whatnot. The general idea was you have this other world and then they, you need to drop down the, the, the savior, the, the magnet, the, the God, the, the, the admin, if you want, who was Christ, the son. So they had the monad, they said, who lived in the other world and then they had the son who would drop down into this world and he would be in the world of the, the Demiurge, which is the evil world, which is the one we live in. And he would, he would collect you up and save you. And how this manifested over time was very, very, like very, a lot of very different ways. You had the snake and this is the benevolent snake in many sense. His most basic form was this idea of the, the life libido, if you want, and how, how would, ancients would have experienced that would have been the the instincts you know or, or the kundalini over in, in the east and so that's a snake that comes up from your your um anja chakra i believe or your root chakra up to your your head and that's when that snake moves you you become enlightened and you escape the the, the delusion if you will that is the point of yoga like all of this stuff actually parallels in the east samsara the world of the demiurge and nirvana the world of the monad god and then um, yoga or meditation or the buddha they would be the the tools out of this and so the basic ancient way of this happening would have been yes the, following the snake the snake the instinct would have brought you to the truth if you can master it that of course turned into the phallus as we were talking about earlier and you got you get a lot of symbol about this and as james was noting the christ became very very sexualized at one point because it was this 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 the sex image the sex energy at the root is the most powerful energy you have because it is the root form of the energy that you must distill into the more noble energies of um you know advanced libido as they were saying think of the kundalini metaphor it's very useful it starts out as base and if you can channel it towards something higher you can escape because what is fundamentally the thing that keeps you trapped in the demiurge's world that is your desires. He controls you with your lowest desires. And so he pulls you down into his materialistic world by keeping you trapped to the lowest form of your desires, your basis desires. So if, if you can master your desires and purify them and make them noble, if you can control this thing and you can um, stop letting it control you, you can escape. And that's exactly what Christ did. Like Christ was presented with the opportunity for power and everything. And he said, and that was no, uh, the appeal to this most basic energy. And he said, no, I'm going to do the most noble version of this. And that, that was his proof of how to escape. Because then obviously he rose from the dead and being like, proof, proof of concept. I've risen from the dead. Therefore, I have achieved the escape. This evolved into the sword. So this is the, the male will. 
the the idea of splitting, cutting, as James was saying, slicing things apart, um, installing order into the world. So Christ is this idea of the splitter, the divider. The sword is the divine image of masculine, masculine rule, masculine power. Then that turns into a word. So you can see how this symbol is evolving. You have snake, basic instinct, human basic instinct. Then you have a human instinct to create order through violence, through cutting, through brutality, through ruthlessness. And these are all noble in their, their manifestations. They also obviously have a dark side. Then you get speech, which is the ability to be cutting, be clear, be rule, rule with your word. And then it abstracts into the idea of logos, who I've represented as Hermes here. This becomes something even more abstract, as we were saying before, which is um, that idea of a concept. So you've got speech, which is speak well, control people with speech, and then you've got order, rule with order. Order is this ability to divide people. So you can see how that idea is distilling out. And as James said, like, what if there's, what if the problem is that we, we aren't, like, you couldn't have just said, walked back to the ancients and said, Logos is the way. They would need to hear Christ as the sword. They would need to hear um, the, the, the speech being the way. Perhaps that's what was necessary for the people writing the Bible who said that the, in the beginning, the, the God, God was the word. Maybe they needed word at that point. And now we're moving. Are we transitioning to a point where we, 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 blah, where we need something that is super abstract? Is that what's happening? And so I'm just going to briefly set up the world that they lived in and to close this. And this is uh, like uh, James, I think, is twitching or something like that. I don't know why. Like it's, it's, uh, it's just a because, picture of the uh, Because I understand that the Gnostics knew that the flat earth truth was, was real. <laughs> they knew 2,000 years ago that NASA were liars. No, in in all, in all seriousness, no. They actually might have known that NASA was liars. I'm joking. Calm down. Like any like professors who are watching, relax, please. But like, what you were saying about the Gnostics, this is a weird idea. Is the the Ion took place, the Ion of Pisces, over the course of two thousand years. We might still be in it now. But what the Gnostics were able to do somehow through some psychic mechanism was to go up into that ion level of reality yeah. of whatever the fishes were doing, see the entire story laid out because yourself is you across a long period of time. So they were jumping up into the self, seeing the entire course of the ion from Christ through to Antichrist and the falling down and the demiurge and all that stuff. And they would go zoop, and then they would lay it out in the form of dreams. So synchronistically everything they were doing fell down into into their works so it is very possible that they also saw what nasa was doing in the 1960s and saw that they were in fact liars and um that is an important thing to understand is what these people were interpreting so it's very hard to get a visual on this so if someone's on the podcast forgive us we're, we're just going to talk a little bit visually about it now but again like if you want to if you want to be able to visualize the way these people were conceptualized this think of a flat earth you know quote unquote think of something like that because it gives you a lot better perspective on how they were looking at this this is um this is again ties into the problem we have with the the, the, the way we've modeled the universe is that we think it's this big empty place with nothing going on. So it's very hard for us to fit in metaphysical ideas and psychological ideas into that context because we don't have a way of seeing it. So a metaphysics in some sense is a, a way of unifying these psychological ideas with the material ideas. And our, our crisis is that since we've discovered that we live on a, like a round globe flowing around the sun, in an empty, dead, cold universe, it's very—it's—it's it's almost impossible for us to create a metaphysic because, like, where? How do you fit that in? 
people, the, the way people have, have achieved this, and this is what um, Alex Jones talks about is there's, there's other dimensions. That's what they say. They say, all oh, right, so what's going on is that there's another dimension. So even though the, the universe is big and empty, there's actually a way of, of going into a different version of the universe we're in. And you see the people who are talking about simulation saying, okay, right, we don't live in a flat earth. We live in this big empty universe. But the way they fit in this metaphysic, this idea that the Gnostics are going to describe here is they say, okay, well, there's an alternate reality. There's an, there's a, an alternate timeline, different timelines, different metaphysics, simulations. The Matrix was a brilliant conceptualization of this. So th this, is, this is what's so genius about the Matrix is that it fit that metaphysics. It fit this metaphysics into a new metaphor that worked for the post-Newton, post-Galileo age. And that's really important to understand. And you can even see, like, if you want to psychologically analyze a flat earther, in some sense, they are trying to bring that stuff back. Like, and th that could be a danger in what they're trying to seek. Like, maybe, maybe there's a need for them to, to find this because it will prove that God is real for them again. And, and that's them reaching for this metaphysic. And that's not even to say that they're wrong. Like, who fucking knows at this point what's going on? Like, uh, Elon Musk is saying there's a simulation. Like, like wh what do we know about what's going on? And this is the struggle that we had. We don't know what's going on. We fundamentally can't know. And the Gnostics were saying... The obsession with understanding the material world is a delusion. It's a mistake because this world is always meant to deceive you. Even if you, if you think the earth is flat, you're still trapped underneath the firmament. If you think the earth is in the center of the solar system of a dead empty universe, you're still trapped in this dimension. You're always trying to escape because the demiurge owns this and his job is to keep you trapped. And your job is to wake up. And so as James was saying, they would wake up and they would lift out of the firmament and enter into the, the heaven. And what was heaven only? It was the world of ideas. And in some sense, this is, you can even think of it as the world of memes in some sense. Like you, we, the way memes control us, you know, communism ripped through the 20th century and just took people up and possessed them. That's, um, that's a meme taking control. And if you could lift up into the, the meme world, and just think about ideas if you want to keep it rationalistic or materialistic and whatnot. You would be you would be perceiving a vast amount of very interesting things if you could map out that imaginary dream world like someone like Nietzsche did. So so they had this conception of this world, and then the firmament was this seal, like the prison walls, and then above it was this sacred space, which was made of water, heaven, if you will, heaven of water. Um, where the gods lived or where, where God lives, where the monad was, where the center was, whatever. And this is what we call heaven. And up there is um, yeah, the waters in heaven. So James talked about the Euphrates and all that. And it was that suggestion that out of the sky, you can also get that water, that healing water. And uh, you, you notice then that a lot of these saviors, a lot of these admins have this watery element to them. You have Christ coming because this is super interesting. You have the water underneath, which is the unconscious, which is the, the, the derp state we're in, if you will, the demiurg derp state. Then you have the waters above, which is the, the water of, of the, the water of being saved. So it, it relates to the idea of like the snake below is the basic instinct, and then the snake above is the robotic, cold, dead instinct. And it's also the same in our world. We have the, the unconsciousness below. But we also have the unconsciousness of what's above. We're trapped in the middle. We're very much trapped in this, this, this in-between place. And so 
and you know uh, Elon Musk and Alex Jones and that Joe Ro- those Joe Rogan podcasts they're they're saying that there's this sub um rendering lower place you know uh, they they use very technical machine language but they say that beneath us there's this lower dimension where that renders this dimension and um above us there's higher dimensions and the, the alex jones then adds the myth on top of it so elon musk said that about the dimensions and then we're in this sort of middle dimension and uh, alex jones says that the, the lower dimension is trying to pull us back into it whereas there's the higher dimension is trying to lift us out of it and so you can see these people describing gnostic beliefs and like is that any different in heaven and hell it's all the same in that sense and so these um and so, yeah, that you can see them building that belief together and you have uh, someone like Christ lifting you out of unconsciousness and he can walk on water. He can walk on unconsciousness, but he'll never fall in. He'll never fall into unconsciousness because he is purely of God. He is purely of true consciousness, true awakenedness, if you will. And so, yeah, you have that idea of Christ returning to earth out of heaven, Christ coming out of the waters of heaven. And um, that, that type of idea. Now, this is what's interesting about this is it, it transcends not only Christianity, but it's quite present all around the world everywhere. Vishnu comes in across the waters. Enki comes in from Sumeria out of the waters. I believe Vishnu himself actually comes out of the sky waters. And Vishnu is the, the Christ figure. Like Christ is considered a version of Vishnu over there in the East. They were like, yeah, good old Jesus, yeah. He was, he was Vishnu come down. So they, they have an interesting way of viewing this. They believe that this, this permanent archetype is this permanent position of the admin is Vishnu. And what happens is um, he comes down in various different forms depending on the, the, the ion, if you will. And so as we were saying, he, he might have come down as a snake initially. Then he came, down as a, he came down as the phallus. Then he comes down as the sword. Then he comes down as the, the logos, the word. And so he comes down in the form of Buddha. He comes down in the form of a great person. He comes down in the form of Christ. So he is the centralized archetype coming out of the unconscious. And then Enki as well. As you can see with Enki here, he has fish coming out of him because Enki was a fish god. Enki was the, he came out of the unconscious just the same. Enki was the bringer of technology to Sumerians. And it also relates to that idea that we were talking about earlier that this, this is all set up in a sort of, god not being conscious it's almost like this is a dream of god and so that that sends up the the very strange premise that uh that uh our self is in some sense asleep in some sense it's in the unconscious it's some sense controlling everything but it's not really awake in the way we are and so this sets up a, a very very crazy idea that gnosticism suggests is that maybe what we're trying to do is we're trying to create a universe together with god and where we imagine if we're the forefront of his creation imagine if we're the, the like he's using us as the the hand the craft forward and and what we need to do we are like we are him we are gods they say we are gods god leapt down via the demiurge into this reality to craft a new reality a new kingdom of heaven if you will or he, you know he wanted to do the next movement of a symphony and so in order to do it, the, the, whole, the whole drama of that movement, of that part of the story, of that part of the symphony is, is us becoming awake. And so it's, it's almost like he is asleep and our experience is his awakeness, as his, is him. Like our experience is God himself becoming awake and our, our endeavor is to try 
waked up the God in us, get back to that. And then we move the whole story forward. And that's the whole big drama that's going on. And so the whole ruthless side of it, where it's, there's this cleanser versus this, versus this merciful side, the, 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 the sword as Christ was taking away the gold and putting away the chaff is um, this, this God going through this endeavor. And then at the end, which, you know, when he properly wakes up, when he properly comes back, he says, okay, cool. These are the people who, who, uh, who are, who brought us forward. And this, this is the shit that we don't need. This is, it's almost like he's a sculptor or something. Whew. And so um, all these metaphors keep coming up. You get the fish that comes out of the water. You get the snake that comes out of the water. And then, of course, the dark side of all this stuff is the demiurge himself where the, the unconsciousness can reach out of the water in the form of the kraken and pull you down. Or as we, and we talked about uh, those that we should focus on, you have Cthulhu who's dead dreaming in the sleep at the bottom of the earth. And he will come out and he will pull you down into permanent unconsciousness. That is the demiurge uh, energy or the anti-god, if you will or maybe God's super dark side and whatnot. And then um, one of the last things I want to go into is this idea of this, this water, this unconsciousness, and at the very bottom of it being this super powerful force, which is the self in some sense, but also the dark side of the self that we're talking about, the ultimate unconsciousness, the death of all deaths. And then um, our tragedy is that, we are these humans that are falling down into the waters and we get eaten by the whale like Jonah did. And as Jordan Peterson says, we need to awaken our father out of the unconsciousness. That is in some sense what I'm sort of describing here is that our tribute, what we owe God, the way we redeem ourselves is that we need to go down and actually find him again and wake him up by waking ourselves up. It's one of these strange paradoxes and it all ties into the Gnostic dream in, in some sense that, um, to layer on young symbi- symbiology to all this eventually is that we are, um, we are lost. We live in a demiurge's world. We live in a, we live in a, we live in a world that we're, where we're unconscious. You know, this is to use young, young, young's language. We don't really know what's going on. There's all these forces behind us hidden behind this veil of unconsciousness, which is the shadow evil, if you will. And behind us, these, uh, we're getting pulled by these strings, which is the anima, Sophia, these emotions. And what we need to do in order to become a, to, to, to succeed, to do the right thing in life, if you will, is to go past that shadow, go past this veil, which is the, the surface water, go into the deep, move past Sophia, who is almost like the, the, the evil, evil spirit who will deceive you if you're not careful, but also the one who will guide you if you are. And go all the way down to God, which is the self, and reawaken him. He's at the very, very back of your mind and, and re-energize that. And you will be and then you will snap a, you will snap a connection to him and then be a good actor in this world. You'll be saved from this world. You'll be able to do the right thing in this world. You'll be conscious in a world of unconsciousness. And if you can achieve that, especially the thing that will help you is the Son or Christ, he will guide you there. You will um you will achieve a good life per se. So the reason why we can't do this anymore or the problem he was suggesting, and this is the, the final quip I'd like to drop in, is that we becoming rational. When we fell, there were some dis- deceptions that we had to avoid. We had to avoid the deceptions of becoming, of falling for, for evil, falling for the dark sides, falling for the, uh, as I said, Cthulhu and all that, falling for all the, the dark sides of these symbols that we're talking about. And we fell for it. We became materialistic. We became rationalistic. We stopped believing that the laws of the universe um, had any psychological consequences. We believe they were just mach- material machines. 
And so we lost the idea of moral law. We lost the idea of anything being able to be justified, anything metaphysical being able to be justified anymore. We became psychologically imbalanced. And so that, that's a big problem. And Jung's suggestion I got out of this, and I think this is probably the big suggestion out of his whole book, is that if we are to succeed going forward and uh, uh, mitigate the, the tragedies of consciousness, we need to find those metaphors again that um, it took millennia for us to win out of this unconsciousness. We need to find that again or else we will sink into something deeper and darker we can ever imagine. And at that bombshell, I will give it back to James. Dun, dun, dun. No, that's, that's very, very exciting. I enjoyed that nice spiel of yours. Yes, it's very, it, it, it's, it's very exciting. Essentially what Jung is setting up, I think, is that what everyone in human history has done, we'll say over the course of our ion, is they have desired a relationship with God. And the way that they used to say it was in that language, religious language, but the way that we see it today is that they were speaking literally. When yes. Jung's frame is that yes. they were not speaking literally. That's how they were able to conceptualize what they were doing. So regardless of God, regardless of the language, at core the mission is still the same thing, which is to become a whole person. It goes back to what Plato was saying back in ancient Greece. You need to know thyself. And in many ways, it's the whole story of Carl Jung's Ion is how can we best come to know ourselves? And it comes through trying to find that magnet, which is in Gnosticism, trying to find the magnet that's in alchemy, becoming as little children. So going back to how we were before our humility, when we were closer to God so that we can truly enter the kingdom of heaven. And over the course of these lectures, it's become pretty easy to start using that language whilst knowing what it really means like when yes. i say for example you need to become as little children to enter the kingdom of heaven i don't mean it literally but it just makes sense to me and that's how people used to behave in the past and of course the gnostic trap or the and it's also represented in paradise lost is that the ego became too arrogant for its own good and it fell for what's happening in the material world and unless we get back in touch with psychological law we are in seriously big trouble because the logos hermes wand the snake the water aqua doctrine mercurius whatever language whatever symbol you want to use that's the ordering principle within our own psychology and if we don't have that ordering principle the order with which will lead to a more complete whole version of ourselves then we're in some seriously big trouble yes yes um and i will just briefly say uh, to, to add to what James was saying there, like the way we use memes nowadays even suggests that we still do this, despite the fact that we think all, like, you know, we think Greek mythology and was just retarded, like what? They believed that Zeus was up there and all that shit. And we believe like, oh, Jesus rose from the dead and like Jesus this and Jesus that. It's all stupid shit. But then if you think about it, like we watch a film like The Matrix, which is very topical to this. And now everybody's using the meme red pill because it, it's just such a perfect metaphor for what's going on. Like do you, you do actually take so many red pills in your life about so many different things there's so many things that actually look different or are different in the way you perceive them when you're you're young and all this and when you wake up to them when you become conscious in that type of sense and it's usually horrible it's like oh, what it was a lie all along in that sense so we use those metaphors and Jung is saying that the, the fact that we you know like we, we turn around now when we look at all these past metaphors as retarded and stupid and useless and we want to throw them off is, and this is what he calls the transvaluation of values. This is what he believes is the dark side of that endeavor, if you will, is that the idea that, all right, I can just get rid of all that 
I can just get rid of the idea of all these metaphors and it'll be fine. It's like those metaphors were codified over millennia to represent very important psychological aspects of our world. And we need to rediscover them because if not, we will become very vulnerable to people who know how to create useful metaphors like equality over holidays or uh, vote me in, I'm a communist, things like that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the, the, I, go on. No, I was going to say, I, I think I'm spent. So uh, if you want to close my mind, please, please. Yeah. The, the, the Gnostics are obviously doing a dream reading version of Christianity. They, they were very interested in secret knowledge. There's a book called the secret book of James, for example, which is very strange. And it's oh, with yeah? Jesus. Sure it is. It is. It's, it's na- it is my book. I'm a very old, old, old man. I am actually Jesus Christ reincarnated. That's the whole story of Ion. <laughs> He actually came down as a very attractive Englishman. But in the secret book of James, it's characteristic of lots of Gnostic texts. Jesus, he took James aside, me, and was like, James, you are my favorite of the disciples. I'm going to tell you all of my secret wisdom. And his secret wisdom, it makes no sense whatsoever. It's just like, as above, so below, and all this weird stuff. Um, but So they were trying to interpret what was really going on in Jesus's words. But in psychologizing Christianity, there is one part of Christianity you cannot psychologize which leads the myth to continue as a myth, even if you psychologize it. And that goes back to the resurrection. Jung was asked what he thought of the resurrection. And, you know, when he's asked about other things, he's able to psychologize it brilliantly. But when asked about the resurrection, he said, I have no comment. Because it's not an archetype. The, the resurrection as a phoenix, as a spiritual entity, is an archetype. It's the, it's the Jobian archetype, that transformation idea. But the resurrection in a body, which is insisted on by Jesus, by the canonical Gospels and by Paul, is not something which falls into that frame. So either that's a nonsense piece of false archetype, it's a fake hope, a wish fulfillment idea, or it's something else which not even Jung could wrap his head around. And that gives me great hope and great excitement and my conspiracy brain lights on fire at the thought of that. Yes, yes. It's, um, it, is, it, is the, it is the crux of Christianity. Of, like, wow, like of everything, really. So it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You can psychologize that one. It's a weird one. Like, oh, he, he reborn in our hearts. It's like, I don't know. Yeah, no, he came back and he showed people the literal physical holes in his hands and they also didn't recognize him. And I don't know what that means. But uh, but people, we have one more Ion lecture left after this one. It's very technical. It's it's uh, very, very difficult to try and wrap our heads around, but we'll do our very best for you. And once that final Ion lecture is over, we don't know what's going to happen. So if you have any suggestions on future projects, please let us know in the comments down below, not in the live chat. Normally, this is when we would say, hello, have you got any questions for us? But we don't because YouTube has decided that we are too too sodomaic for them to exist on their platform anymore. Yes, yes. Um, like I will say, no, YouTube hasn't done anything bad to us. It was just that they've, they're changing the way they're using Google Hangouts and all this. So we're just having technical difficulties with that. People, I hope you enjoyed. I would like to bounce now. I am spent. And by all means, if you want to join us and talk about this stuff, hit us up on Discord, hit us up on Patreon in general if you just want to contact us. We're getting loads of questions. Those are very interesting questions and people have been doing interesting interviews with people behind the scenes. If you want to get in on that, pop in and find contact. All the contact details will be below in this video. Pop it in Discord, Patreon. We're on Facebook. We're on Twitter, all of that stuff. So we hope to see you soon and we will talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.